friends, and welcome to another episode of the Dream Nation Love Podcast. I'm your host, Yulia. This particular episode is running late by a week and a half, and it's because I'm a new mom now. I've got a three-month-old. I'm not going to sugarcoat it. The first two months were really, really intense. But now I feel like we've reached the cruising altitude of 30,000 feet, and I'm getting back on schedule, and the baby's having fun, and things are just like on track to be normal again, which is really, really lovely. And speaking of lovely, I'm going to introduce my next guest. His name is Kobe Kennedy. He's an industrial designer who turned his attention to the fine arts. Kobe is brilliant, lovely, amazing human being. He's a true multimedia artist. His work spans across video, fabrics, art, murals, sculpture. I absolutely love him and his work, and I was so excited to sit down and talk to him. The podcast is actually two hours long because for the first hour, we didn't even like get to the podcast. We had so much fun talking about so many other things. So this is definitely an extended podcast. Kobe graduated from the Duke Ellington School of the Arts in DC. That's his background. And then from there, he went on to receive his BA in Industrial Design from Pratt Institute. He also received his MFA from Columbia and became a Scohegan Fellow in 2011. He's got a really, really, really deep background in the arts. And that's why his work is absolutely amazing. Before turning his attention to the fine arts though, Kobe designed concept cars for Honda, Citroen, and Alfa Romeo. I wish we spoke about this on the show a little bit more, or like even at all, but we kind of glazed over it because uh, we had so many other things to talk about. So we're going to do another podcast and loop back around to it in a few months. It's going to be another installment that you can look forward to. Kobe's work is exhibited both nationally and internationally. You can find it in galleries and private collections, and he's received numerous awards. I hope you enjoy the show. Please share it with a friend, and I can't wait for you to hear it. All right, have a great day. I miss art shows. That's what I really miss during this pandemic. I miss art shows and i've been kind of getting it through netflix i've been watching documentaries on music and art and i've been going into clubhouse speaking of design clubhouse just erupts every time you press a button and like if i'm breastfeeding at like three o'clock in the morning and the notification pops up and my finger like flubs it then it wakes Mm -hmm. the baby like the ux like you can't teach good design uh yeah see you're, you're convincing me not to jump on clubhouse now everybody's been like come on over come on over to clubhouse do it because you have so much fun things to say and you're so smart and like really? clubhouse makes smart people it's fun but it's okay. in moderation it's just, everything in moderation right i i think i've been inundated by all these subprime mortgage dividend swap fucking short sell whatever things that come out that promise oh it's this new thing it's going to revolutionize blah 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 but it's all based on pers- projective pro- you know projective returns on how they know that the audience is going to act and that's going to be a plus for blah, blah, blah. And it's going to benefit blah, blah, blah. But really it's just like yet another platform for people, for people to just sound off on. But I can send you an invite. (laughs) I'm I'm just going to do it. I'm going to jump on. I'm going to check it out. I'm going to see what's up. I'm going to see what's going on. You can always delete it. Well, see, here's the thing. Everybody that tells me to get on clubhouse, they're not selling it well they're like yeah come on clubhouse i'm like well what's it all about it's like now we just get on and talk shit mindless shit about shit and somebody comes on they talk about blueberries and then you know we just talk about some more shit and it's you know it's just it's a good way to waste time i'm like you're not selling me on a good way to waste time this is horrible this sounds horrible it's really great for meeting new and interesting people like the social aspect that we're missing right now like if you kind of even want to talk to people right 
because look this you and me this is like one of the five human interactions i probably had this like in months like i haven't seen people i i've just been in hermit mode and i have a baby and i have my 70 year old mom with me like helping me and then my husband has a has a show he's going to be filming so i'm like preserving all of them i'm like nobody is i can't get anybody sick so i'm in hermit mode which is fine but it's good if you like if you want a little bit of social interaction but without like the human face <laughs> this makes a lot of sense because now that you've opened that door i'm going back and realizing that of the people that have been pushing me to get on clubhouse 80 percent of them are of the hermit variety like they have not left the house or they've expressed they're really hurting off of the separation of social stuff in the last year that makes sense why clubhouse is blowing up and then the other like 15 percent are just sociopaths you know what i mean <laughs> like it's just like you gotta get on people are crazy and you talk about biscuits you know it's, it's nuts but this makes a lot of sense to me so i, well, yeah. I i'm thinking about my new push for my new general strategy. The thing that hit me about this last year is that I don't speak English anymore because I'm so used to talking to myself. So I just use my own words. <laughs> I've been using different words. I think it's Alzheimer's. Maybe we're getting old. I, I said pillow instead of a blanket the other day. And then I said ear instead of foot. And I was like, uh -huh. oh, it's happening. It's happening. The wheels I are going. I swear to God, it's because we don't have to uh, run the human filter when we speak or think for like this whole last year. You know what I mean? And it's and it's autocorrect. And and uh, mm. whenever you're typing, words just pop up for you. Organic autocorrect. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> my whole thing is that my whole life I've always thought I think in pictures and experience and video. You know what I mean? I don't think in words. So as a translation that happens between here and here, and sometimes. It, 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 it's, a, it's a weak connection. You know, the Wi-Fi isn't so good between my brain and my mouth. And is. Kobe, Kobe is kind of like running his finger from his head down to his mouth to oh, yeah. kind of like illustrate for everyone <laughs> listening on audio. I was a car designer for many years over in uh, Japan. And I had this friend, Alvaro de Campo. And he was the coolest dude. He was the sweetest dude. He was from uh, Spain. And I feel like he was from the northern Spain or wherever the, the best region maybe but he would say these things you know and and we were in a design studio that had all these different people from different nations and so it was kind of like uh you know the um tower of babel it was it was beautiful and so there was he spoke spanish it's but uh you know i think bad spanish but he would do literal translations when he was translating to speak to us naturally right and so he would say these things like i'd be like yeah, Alvaro, so um, what did you think of that new uh, James Bond movie or whatever? And he'd be like, oh, yeah, you know, the crow flies sweetly in the sunset, but it drowns underwater when the volcanoes erupt. And I'd be like, what the fuck? What? And you'd be like, Alvaro, you want to go to McDonald's? And he'd be like, yeah, yeah, two times on a three, and the wheel rolls down the street. I was like, okay, what the fuck are you doing? And it turned out that I, evidently in the Bass region, I think, I may be wrong about this, but they speak, they speak in like, poetic phrases that mean an actual thing you know what i mean it, it's you know what i mean it, it's kind of like yes. that star trek episode where uh what's his name the bald dude captain picard he landed on the planet and it was just him and this alien and the alien kept talking in his own language which was inexplicably in english i don't know how that worked but the alien was like 
chakra when the walls fell you know you would say all that shit and they just didn't know so i was literally living with an alien for like four years in japan that would just be like yes brown tables and the beer spills well when you ask him what time is it? it it's funny that's that's kind of that thing where it's like i feel like i'm getting like him now like you're talking about like just weird shit just comes out of my mouth and it makes sense to me i'm makes afraid that i'm gonna slip up and like say a swear like i'm like oh my god is it gonna be Tourette's? like am i, I just gonna come out with like the n-word like yeah. oh my god what is yeah. like i'm terrified like what is happening with my brain no there's like a very healthy and open <laughs> and uncensored dialogue going on all the time in my head but it's like if any word can come out what word that well here's another question do you speak multiple languages mm-hmm. yeah whoa yeah i think like maybe it's just our brains melting from like all the languages and i'm trying to brush up uh, on my spanish right now and i'm like i don't think i can handle it like i mean i can i see where you're coming from for me i know that it's not because i've actually been this way since before i could speak other languages interesting i've kind of been with this way since birth i deduced it i was like i went back to childhood and i realized that i grew up in a bubble i grew up in a, an artistic bubble my mom full-on professional artist my dad, full-on professional artist. People in my family, full-on professional artist. My dirty uncle Rocky, he used to try to be a uh, photographer. You know, it's like all these things. My, my brother, he's a, a writer and stuff like that. So I, I was born into the world of the avant-garde artist. And it wasn't until, honestly, it wasn't until 2010, 2008, when I came back to America, that I spent any good amount of time around normal humans. And so it's honestly been a culture shock between then and now for the last decade, getting used to actual people and not wildly gonzo artists. Yeah. Well, your stepbrother is also Hank Willis Thomas, right? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I, I, I was like, stepbrother? I don't have a stepbrother. I call him my MWB, my might as well be brother. Are you still in Brooklyn? Yeah. You had to move studios, right? Yeah, I lost that studio, man. I lost a battle with the Hasidians. Yes, I remember that. Dude, the Hasidians are so cutthroat in Bushwick with the real estate. That, it's re- I, I'm, I don't, I don't care about the. I'm talking freely, and like they, it got nasty, man. I'm talking about these families showed up at my door with like a bouncer. Talking about, can yeah. we have a talk? I was like, no, yeah. we may not. I was no, in my underwear eating crazy. cereal. It's crazy. It's crazy. They got some Puerto Rican bouncer to come with yeah. them. I don't think people would even believe it, but I was watching Unorthodox the other day and they had the same scenario where I've been in Williamsburg for 15 years and the real estate Hasidic market is ruthless, ruthless, ruthless. 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 And ruthless. we're outsiders to them, so they don't care. Yes. Yeah. It hurts me deeply because I'm an honorary Jew. I was made honorary Jew in 2008 and 2011 when I was at Skowhegan. Word. And I just don't understand why my brethren does not just chill the fuck out and get it together yeah. and join the rest of society in trying to just be good with each other. Well, you know, I'm, I'm Jewish too. And I'm like, I don't know, the, the Hasidic is, it's too intense for me. I don't, I don't yeah. really understand it. And it just, you know, I think it's like, a, as a Jew too, I speak to the fact that like, you know, the Hasids really hide under this pious veil. Yeah. But there's a lot of really shady and unpious activity that happens. And I think it's something that the community needs to address at some point. You know, how you treat other people, how you yeah. treat the women in your community. I swear to God. How, how you treat, like... How you treat humans. It's some fucked up shit. Because I used to live in Williamsburg. I've lived all around North Brooklyn 
pretty much every neighborhood in North Brooklyn. Fort Greene, Williamsburg, Clinton Hills, Bed-Stuy, Bushwick, East Williamsburg, blah, blah, blah. I cannot say that I've had more than 10% uh, positive experiences in the Hasidic or Orthodox community. And I I don't know if you've noticed this. Like, so when you're, when you're riding through, when there's a whole bunch of Hasidic or Orthodox folks and they're trying to cross the street, the women will push the stroller with the baby out in front of them, almost defying, daring a car (laughs) to hit them. Yes. So that the yes. car will slow down and then they cross. They literally put their child in front of a... Child. Yeah, it's very aggressive. It, I, it's, I'm bugged out. I, I'm, I'm bugging. That's just, a, that's just a thing. Every time I ride through, it's like that. And yes, then... That's um, how they this, cross. It, it's bananas. <laughs> and then there's the whole thing with like the real estate thing that I've dealt with so many times. I mean, just some cold-blooded cutthroat, like mm-hmm. how, how bad can I fuck over this person kind of thing. And then, oh God, I was riding my bike and I got doored by these high seats. They just flip the door open. Bam. I slam into the door. I go flying into the air, into the gutter, six feet. I'm laying in the gutter. I sprang like two things. I feel like I broke my hand. They literally got out the car, looked down at me, just like, uh, and then just kept it moving. Keep walking. You know what I mean? Like, like they literally gave me a shrug, like physically shrugged and moved on. Oh my God. I got years of this stuff. And just so that the listeners don't think that I have any bias, um, I think all communities suck. So. (laughs) Yeah, same here. Yeah. But but yes, definitely. But you know what? I've been in Williamsburg for 16 years. Mm. I was going to Williamsburg for 18 years because my friend moved out there with all the artists the first time. Mm. I remember how, like, in 2003, I would see a lot of the younger Hasids at raves. Yeah. And it would be a lot of the boys. Uh-huh. So a lot of the boys would be like smoking and partying. And then we would be like a rubelade. And like finally, I just came up to like a pair and I was like, can I ask what you guys are doing here? Like, this is not, you know, because uh, let me describe Williamsburg. Williamsburg is an intersection of hipsters, yuppies, artists the artists are pushed out now Hasid and the puerto rican dominican community mm-hmm. so it's like this whole entire like pocket that exists but it doesn't really like interact with each other like everybody just kind of passes through each other's zones which is really surreal but the hipster kind of like everywhere somebody told me it's like a gumbo i was like it's not quite a gumbo it's like a tv dinner that you just kind of shake up everything's still separated but it just bleeds in <laughs> and when it bleeds into the other pockets the other pockets are like get the fuck out of here what are you doing yeah 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 i was talking to the Hasidic boys and i was like what are you guys doing here and they were like you know, we're a part of the community, but we want to get out. So we've been sneaking out and we're probably going to go to Michigan, which has a more like relaxed Hasidic community. Yeah. And they're like, so we're just biding our time because we don't really agree with the way the community works. Yeah. So this can be a whole Hasidic thing. Cause I once went on a date with a guy and I didn't realize he was like highly Orthodox Jewish. And I showed up and he like, he was like, do you mind if I bring my friends over? And I was like, Oh yeah. Like two friends. And like, literally like, Ten of his dude friends came over, and I was like, "Oh my god, it's the community checking me out." Mm. I mean, it was really cute, but I was like, "No," that's, I was like, "This is the first day." Oh my god, my life is going to be ruined. That's funny. This is the first day. Mm. That's wild. The community man. Will be stalking me. They're going to be like, "Yeah, yeah." They, <laughs> they're they're gonna get obsessed. Okay, so New York has has always been kind of a transient destination. Kind of, like people come from other places. You know, it's like blah, 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 this and that. It's interesting being around so many of these people that are just now influxing to NY. 
and they're experiencing the post-native NY, I guess you could say. You know what I mean? And Yes. Very, like, polished. Yeah, 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 yeah. Shiny and like Disneyland. Right. And people that have lived in NY from, for decades, right? This, this whole disconnect that, that folks have. So it's like when you get in a conversation, you're talking about how, like, real things that go on in certain communities, you know, like the down, down Bensonhurst way, you know, like the white American communities down there or the black communities in Bedside or the Hasidic communities in South Williamsburg. There's so many people, influxers and gentrifiers that are like, oh, no, hey, stop, 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 stop saying that. No, you can't say that. I'm like, I will show you right now. We can get on a bus. We can go to any of these communities, and I, I will call it. And I do that to some of my friends that just show up. I'm like, I'm going to show you exactly. And I lay out exactly what they're going to see, exactly what's going to happen, exactly what this person's going to do. And their jaws drop to the ground. They're like, oh, my God, how did you call that? I was like, yo, New York is still New York. It, it kind of reminds me of your work, right? Like, mm-hmm. bringing this back to your work, your work is all about archetypes. Yes, yes. And I think that, like, all these people in all these places exist in archetypes and like i'm an archetype i i can't escape my archetype like i'm russian jewish and you know whatever archetype that is like i, I can't escape it mm-hmm. like I, I am a woman i am on um, all these things mm. and that kind of goes back into your work yeah. too yeah because i love your work i'm like oh, i want to be able to afford it i'm like just a few more years just a few more years and i'm like <laughs> i just need a house well come to my show that's opening on Jan- on february 27th at two for chief's new location on spring street in soho and perhaps you will be able to find portable artwork by uh young Cody. i'm in hermit mode because i'm afraid of getting sick so i'm i'm, I'm on lockdown with everyone but i will <laughs> check it out it with you i'll facetime it with you but yeah i love your work and Thanks. it's about archetypes and i was just checking out your latest like kevlar series mm. which is really beautiful because it looks like it looks like relics right like those religious relics yes like those like divinity like usually like you see them in like a triptych or you find them in an abandoned church I, kobe's motioning i love you right now <laughs> i love you so much it is so good to hear it come back at me you know what i mean because i'm like good it works it registers okay good it works all your work right i was like going deeper into it because all of your work has a story behind it you don't just like make a work like it's like a star wars sega there's like a world there's a story there are characters yeah and i was like diving into it with a with a thug or not yeah and I was wondering if you want to talk a little bit about that. The fact that every single part of my work is uh, so heavily narrative comes from me being raised on 1980s media. I'm a direct example. Oh, and having no friends. Okay. Yes. <laughs> That's why we're artists. Artists need to live in their head. Artists like you and me got to live in their head. Artists like so many that I've met along the way post 2010, not so much. Not so much. I've learned <laughs> the, the, the dynamism and the wide breadth of what uh, that word artist means. And I've realized that I dislike, am numb towards or diabolically hate 90% of the artists or art that's out there right now. All my stuff is so heavily narrative because grew up in DC on Howard University campus. My dad was the uh, dean of the art department at Howard University. So I was doing like you know, sketches of nude models in class with college students when I was like six. So I thought all this stuff was normal. And so fast forward, they moved us out of D.C., you know, Chocolate City. It was 90 percent black or something back back then to the suburbs where I was the only black dude within like five 
miles. And so I had no friends because I didn't understand these new creatures that I was seeing. It was bugged out. It was like second and third and fourth grade. So I had no friends there. And so I was all discombobulated. So I did two things. I started trying to figure out what human beings were all about because evidently I didn't understand them. And uh, the other thing was that I was in my head so much that I related to the rest of the world through movies, through film, through cinema, and through media, music videos, movies. I honestly, and you know, people will say this about themselves, but this is honest to God truth. Ever since I was a kid, I've seen the world as a series of jump cuts, pan fades, dolly shots. You know, there's a soundtrack always to anywhere I go. And I thought that everybody in the world, else in the world saw stuff like this. You know, so then I started making art when I got back to the States and my brother Double Dog dared me to be a full time artist. I thought that this is how all artists, you know, professional artists uh, approached the world and saw the world as this ongoing narrative, this multiple narrative that had that was full of different perceptions and subjective realities. You know, but I realized that I was real privileged kind of, you know, growing up in the bubble of avant-garde gonzo artists as my parents were and all my friends that I, you know, because you meet your friends through your parents, all the, all the friends that I did have were, you know. It also comes back to where my mom destroyed my, any sense of common sense that I would ever have in my life when I was six. Because I asked her in front of our house on Gresham Place in DC, I asked her, are there any monsters in the world when I was six? And she was like, yes, yes, there are. And in my head, I'm paraphrasing, but in my head at six, I was like, that's some hell of a hell of a heavy shit to drop on a six-year-old. That's that's messed up, mom. And then she elaborated. She was like, you know, if you came from a place where there were no horses and you came to a place where there were a horse and you saw a horse, you would think that horse was a monster. And I was like, oh, you know, like, 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 wow. Okay, got it. So from that point on, the rule of the world and the rule of the known world universe was it all depends. There are no definites. It all depends. You know, that has really bled into everything that I do, including my my work. So it, like when when my stuff gets really narrative and it looks at archetypes and it takes like elements from the contemporary world and the quotidian world and it pushes them to the fantastical, super pushes them to the fantastical so we can really see how they uh, dynamically work together. That's unintentional, actually. That's that's just the way that I've always thought and the way that I've thought that that the way that I was thinking that everybody else thought until 2010 when I had my rude awakening. I was like, oh, the rest of the world is not like this. All right. So it, it's uh, it's a lucky thing, I guess. Well, I feel like we also went through some kind of like a veil, like in 2012, like everybody was like, oh, the Mayan, the great unveil. Remember, there was all that talk about Aztecs and like moving into the new like 2012, there was going to be all this stuff happening and we're going to go like completely change the world. Remember that? Yeah, they made a movie about it being the end of the world too, 2012. Yeah. Yeah. And and like the more I think about it, I'm like, things started shifting for me in 2012. Like my life now from like 2012 is different. I think you met me when I was married. I was married to Dino and I was with mm -hmm. him for like 11 years. And then we started kind of like breaking apart around there in like 2014. We were like done. But like, but like my life now, I'm like, I would have never thought I would be here now. Like I just, I feel like I stepped into a different, like a parallel story. Ah. Right. Like I was like, okay, well this was my story running and this was another parallel story running. And I just kind of like switched seats. Outside of 2012, have you, have you dug into like the factors that might've uh, made that switch? 
No, not really. I've been just thinking and thinking, and I, I don't know. I, I've been thinking about this a lot. I'm like, I feel like maybe the Hadron Collider maybe like did something. I'm like, things got like. <laughs> I wouldn't doubt it. I wouldn't doubt it. You know, I, I think about that a lot these days about reality, subjective reality, transcendental reality and all these things and what is reality, especially with quantum physics. You know what I mean? Like my mom was heavy into quantum physics and quantum theory and all of her paintings, all of her huge oil paintings, they look like landscapes. But what they really were were landscapes if you were the size of a quark and you were inside you know, on the atomic level, you know, and so that she was my mind. Yeah, yeah, she would paint the insides of molecules and quarks and the God particle and all this stuff. I remember she had an opening that um, I took care of the promotions for the opening that she had in in Charleston, South Carolina, the, the biggest gallery in Charleston. Sixty percent of the people that I actively courted to come through were quantum physicists from the universities and institutions up north of Charleston. And uh, they brought their friends, they brought their friends. It was cool. It was a bunch of quantum physicists just getting drunk and getting getting their minds blown by the art and uh, conversating all, all about that stuff. It's really interesting. So I'm, I'm super into that. And especially with you know, stuff like the double slit test and all this other stuff and that all the things that happened in the last couple of years with entanglement and how they uh, had a particle that was outside of the Earth atmosphere entangled with a particle that was here and, all, and, te and the teleportation thing that they did just now. All these things, you know, it's interesting because they do point to all the possibilities that so much of this stuff is a simulation or the nature or questioning the nature of our reality. And so I'm really interested in the possibilities of what this reality could be and how it relates to so much that we experience in this waking life, you know, like deja vu or what are dreams or what is premonition or these times that our lives completely change and what are they actually entwined with? Like what happened to you since 2012? And this other thing that happens to me, it just, one of them just happened. It's happened three times in my life where one day everything just switches, like completely switches and you wake up and your accent's different, the way you talk's different, the way you walk's different. You might have forgotten a lot of stuff from before and like your life and, you know, North doesn't look like North anymore. You know, like everything switches over. It happened three times for me. And, um, wait, 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 you can't just like glaze over it. Tell me about the last time. You can't just be like, <laughs> oh yeah, that happened and keep on going. Oh shit. Um, I mean, you could have had like a thick Irish accent. I don't know. Oh yeah, you know. <laughs> yeah, like like I see videos of me from back in the day. I'm like, who is this talking? It's bugged out. Wait, so what happened? What happened on the last time? The last time it hit over the summer, just now in 2020, and I remember so clear. I got up, I stumbled around because I couldn't walk. I was like, okay, this is weird, and then I started talking to myself because I always talk to myself, and I didn't really recognize the person talking to me. You know, I was like, okay, that's wait, what? Huh? And so it was like it was almost like you're in the movies when you're when you're downloaded or transmuted or whatever into a new body or whatever, or like Total Recall or some <laughs> shit like that or whatever. Yeah. And um, you see everything different. You smell everything different. You taste everything different. I used to love chicken my whole life. Like it was my shit. Like Cookie Monster and Cookies. Mine was chicken, baked, fried, poached, and the, the whole deal. I can't stand chicken. I can't stand it at all. On the last download, they, they messed up the program. Oh, yeah? Yeah, like they must they must have been like a glitch in the program. They messed up the program. In the simulation? Yeah, the designer, they didn't have like a great designer working mm -hmm. on it. And the designer wasn't like paying attention. Yeah. 
and they like deleted the like chicken. It's wild. If you had feature. seen me between August and October, you wouldn't have recognized who you were talking to. Like I had to do a lot of work to regain something, you know, like of a voice that sounds similar or accent that sounded similar. I, I used to think that this happened to everybody. You know, I, mean, I thought this was a regular thing because it happened once for me in high school, once for me in Japan. And the third time was this last one right here as well. What were the other times like? Okay, uh, well, before we go into it, I want to say that I feel like these instances are like the great conjunction. You know, it's like the great alignment. It's like in the dark crystal when all the moons and stars aligned and the new species was born. I think it's exactly like that, where the things going on in your head, in your heart, in your thoughts, in your emotions, in your soul align to a certain point at the same time that the environment and the events going on in your life align to a certain point where change is just inevitable, you know? where it's like un unconscious, unconscious change, you know? The first time it was in high school, it was when I first got to Duke Ellington School of the Arts, DC, DC Public Schools, I, from the suburbs and where I hated, and where I had no friends, where I would get beat up all the time, I get in fights, I got sent to the hospital. Like my life sucked in junior high. This shit was garbage, it was the worst, it was the worst. And then I got to Duke Ellington, and I consciously, unconsciously was like, no more of this shit. You know, this is a new day, new dawn, new me, new life, new whatever, right? And as soon as I put myself into that mind frame, I didn't think about it again, but it just, it just happened. I just automatically started becoming this other person. It was overnight. Yeah, it was overnight. I remember it was like, it happened on a weekend. And then Monday, I was like, whoa, who, what, where, what, why, what? I forgot two years of my life. I was thinking back, I was like, holy shit, I cannot remember. 1990 and 1991, I couldn't, re I, I started not being able to remember stuff from it. You know, so I, I think, I think I just automatically compartmentalized it or something. And my voice changed, my accent changed, my style changed, my taste, like everything. I was really young and I noticed that it happened, but I just ran with it. And I started to completely forget who that other person, that old person was. Fast forward many years post-college to Japan. I started this company with uh, this guy that I worked with at Honda. And we went off and did lots of design, this and that. Something happened with the company, the professional interaction, the personal interaction. I felt like my life was falling away from me because like the company was going elsewhere. My life, as I thought it was going elsewhere, my mind state, you know, I had just proposed to someone, but that didn't go well. So, I mean, like all these things, all these dominoes of my life were just falling, not even falling. They were, they were like Avengers blip, like just vanishing into dust. You know what I mean? And uh, here I am, this young black dude, 20 something in Japan with no prospects, uh, you know, I have no idea what my life is like. And then, bam, I remember waking up that day and nothing on the planet looked familiar. Nothing. I walked outside. Nothing. It was like it was like I had been zapped into another dimension where I know I'm supposed to be somewhere called and I couldn't think of it. And then I, it took me a while to be like, oh, uh, Japan, Japan. I'm supposed to be in some place called Japan. All right. Is this what Japan looks like? You know, look at you, you know what I mean? Like it was crazy. It was like the sci fi movies like. It was like, like Twilight Zone. You've been zapped to a completely other planet, but everything's different, but the same at the same time. So you don't know what the hell's going on. Perception. Yeah, I started forging out my new personality after that and not making it up as I go, but trying to find it, you know, with all the experiences that I was going on daily. I was like, OK, whoever I am, would they react this way? OK, I guess we'll go this way, you know, and building from scratch. It's like you get a blank slate and then you build up from there. I figured out. 
I figured out that I think that what it is, I, this is my hy hypothesis here. I think that what it is is that a lot of I think this happens to everybody, but for most people, it's like a clean Photoshop fade of personal development and growth, you know, over the course of their lifetime, over the course of years. I can safely say that I have never, ever done that. I become a thing and I invest in the thing and the things that are around that and grow, blah, 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 do all this stuff, live life, you know, adventure, blah, 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 blah. And then, but I'm that thing. And then the change that would normally happen within that time frame of somebody, you know what I mean? That all that change happens for me instantaneously in the in, in a span of sometimes hours, sometimes hours, so it's overnight. And sometimes like this last switch up over the course of a couple months where you're just like, what's going on? You know, so it, uh, the big changes get compressed. And so much of that has to do with the fact that I have adamantly never bought into the idea of common sense. I've never bought into the idea of rules. I've never bought into the idea of people are different, certain people are certain ways. I've always had a complete open source, uh, a complete open mode of addressing life, the universe, and everything. And I've learned since 2010 that everybody, everybody that I've met since for the last decade, no matter where I am, no matter what, it, with the exception of maybe 20 people, maybe 20, everybody has this common sense approach to the known universe and who they are and who people are and blah, 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 all these, everybody. And I'm understanding how different my thinking and approach is and subsequently how different my development must be from all these all these peeps you know like all of them it's pretty stunning you know and it, and it bleeds into literally everything you know because it is what we are you know it bleeds into our relationships how we drink water how we jump out of a window how we buy a ticket for a plane you know how we live life love you know it, it, it how we go after our dreams too how we go after our dreams. How we go after our dreams to bring it back to the past. Exactly. Or if we don't, you know, there's there, there are people who choose to like jump mm -hmm. off the cliff and do it. Like, like you, and then there are people who just think about it uh -huh. and they just capitulate and they never do it. And then even it, it even subred it subreddit. <laughs> it even <laughs> subcategorically. <laughs> it even subreddits the uh, <laughs> those things like inside of the people within the people that jump off the cliff there's a breakdown of people that think in this way and people that think in that way like how they'll do it because there are people that jump off the cliff that totally buy into standards and practices of common sense they will jump off a cliff very different than i will i have a friend that takes chances and like is crazy successful with it but they take chances before they take the chance, they find another person to pay for the chance, you know, another organization. They have a safety net set up so that if the chance goes wrong, they're blah, 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 this and that. And they go through normal channels of attaining the distance to launch off of said cliff at a good angle of inertia to, you know, it's like this kind of thing. Whereas me, I'm like, I'm like, will it kill me? Somebody says no. I'm like, all right, I'm jumping off this cliff. They're like, no, but wait for the bye. <laughs> you know, I'm off the fucking cliff, you know? And so it's really interesting. It's like I've given a shot at this kind of thing, describing it with very good binary explanations. You know, there are those who jump and there are those who don't, that kind of thing. But I'm, I've realized in the last 10 years, you know, this whole binary thing, it, it, it's, it's not, depending on how you look at it, it's not real. You know, any, anything binary. 
you know, it, once you start peeling off the layers, all this stuff is complex. A lot of it reroutes and comes back to the opposite. You know, it's 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 a lot. Well, I, I'm going to bring it back to the similar, which is the Thuggernaut again, because uh, like your work, it kind of reminds me of like the Matrix too, in a way where people are just kind of like cocooned and they're just like born into this thing. Like the Thuggernaut is this thing. You have to really just go on Kobe's website and read about this whole entire like thesis behind the work. Kobe Kobe Kennedy Studios.com. All about. Yes, Kobe Kennedy Studios.com. Oh, without the S, Kobe Kennedy Studio. But yes, but it goes back to um, the Thuggernaut, which is the suspended reality, yeah. right? And like going back to archetype. And you talk about archetypes, and now I'm getting really deep into code. Like you know yeah. how the Matrix had code, and, and like we're all made mm -hmm. up of one and zeros. Like you know, like like literally, I'm lifting up my arm right now, and I'm sure they're like. I used to code back in the day in Flash. So there was an action script that said, on command, when you do this, lift up arm. Me too. Me too. When I was doing Flash, yeah, on command, yeah. When you were doing Flash, I, I just stopped when I got to trigonometry <laughs> right. because my brain cannot problem trig. Like, I'm an artist, and I was like, <laughs> mm -hmm. no, I can't. Like, mm -hmm. But to me, this is how, like, our yes. energy operates. It just sends these quick impulses that are, I mean, everything has to be code back in the if this is a simulation, if this is a simulation, mm -hmm. which we must be, this is some kind of a flesh simulation. We're all made up of mm -hmm. binary codes that enable us to do this. And if our DNA is code, mm -hmm. if it's just ones and zeros, then our DNA is coded with the way how yeah. you're going to jump off the cliff. You know, there has to be a theory of like why we have people who are more into conspiracy theories than others. Yeah. It's all binary code. There's some kind of like an this, evolution thing yeah. that's coded in you know, there. Exactly what you're talking about kind of alludes to a lot of things like uh, movies. Tenet. Have you seen Tenet yet? Yes. Yes. It uh -huh. blew my mind. It alludes was so to Tenet, good. The Matrix. Was really what was that good. other one about uh, where, where things are what they are? But yeah, code. It also alludes to this friend I have that I think I might have lost as a friend in the last month because it, like, I just, he, it, the, the reason that I feel like I lost this friend is because we both, we definitely believe that we are operating within us as humans are operating within a construct of something. We know that there's more out there. We know that time is relative. We know that the past affects the present, the present affects the future, but we also know that there are definite signs that the future affects the present as well, possibly affects the past. And we also know that reality is based, essentially based on perception, especially depending on what level we're talking about, you know, looking at at the moment, is heavily based on perception. And there's possibilities that there are other factors that are dictating who you are all the way down to what you're going to do, almost like predestination to a certain extent. And Wisham Khan talked about this a lot really good. Westworld, the last season, which I love. I love. Yes, Everybody hated the last yeah. season. We loved the last season. It was our favorite. I haven't made it to the last season, but I don't know if I will. I just haven't had time to like watch anything. Like I, I, I'm gonna just tell you right now. Are you into anime? Yeah, I like some anime. I mean, like I didn't get like like Akira Ghost and in the like Shell? you know Ghost the, in the Shell? stuff. Like Westworld was damn near the live action Ghost in the Shell that we deserved. That one that we 
that we deserve. Not that bullshit <laughs> Scarlett Johansson whitewash crap, which looked beautiful, by the way. It's it's impeccable. It's beautiful. I love everything except for Scarlett Johansson. But not that. Westworld. And one of the main things in Westworld that they were talking about was that, you know, okay, you made us, and you can predict what we do, us robots, you know, that you humans made. But look at this. Y'all are made up of how, how many things are in DNA? It's um four letters three letters, four letters. Y'all are made up of, yeah, y'all are made up of these four or seven letters or whatever it is. And I can predict everything that you're going to do in your entire life, you know? And so it's really interesting because when you look at it, that's true. Everything that we do, you know, in, as far as our perception, based on two factors, what our chemical and genetics are and what we've experienced race, nature and nurture, everything that we've experienced and are made of dictates exactly what we do now at this moment. And fast forward three seconds, everything up to that moment dictates what we'll do in that moment. So if you could look at a person's entire history, chemical, biological makeup and their experiences, you can predict every single thing that they are going to do. But the thing with my friend that I think that we might not be friends anymore is that I look at it as, okay, we are the amalgamation, the manifestation of everything that we've been up to this point. We still have choice. Like it's going to, what we do is going to dictate our choices to go this way, that way, eat this potato, eat that potato. But more importantly, get out of a situation we don't like being in or stay in it and stew. You know what I mean? And, or change the things in our life that we want to have changed. And my friend takes the mode of everything's predestined anyway. I have no power of choice. So ergo and i'm probably using ergo wrong i just have been using it all my life like this ergo you just can let go of the wheel and just let what happens happen and i'm of the mind frame of okay we're predestined to do whatever we're going to do going forward but still there's you know if there's things we don't like in our life we do have the choice to change them or not change them we know that they're there they're visible they're here we have free thought uh, you know, quote unquote, free thought, we can change them or not change them. And there's this interesting place that we get when we talk about this, where we get into this weird place that has no definite gravity, where both of these options can kind of actually be true. But with him, he says he has no choice. He lets go of the wheel. And so he lives in an ap apartment that he doesn't like. He has roommates that he hates. He has people that talk shit to him that cause beef. He has people that victimize him in neighborhoods and like, you know, basically assault him. You know what I mean? And I, I keep telling him, I'm like, all you got to do is move. Just move. He's like, no, I'm not going to move. I was like, no, no, just move. He's like, no, look, I can't. I can't move. I haven't. He, he says, I can't move. I can't change it because I have no choice. Because what's going to happen happens. Yeah. It's all in the mind, right? You have to mm -hmm. hijack the system in a way, right? You have to take control of the code and just go, I'm going to write a new piece of code and I'm just going to action. I'm going to execute this new piece of code. I think it's this thing where everything up to the point that we are all at now, right now, right this minute, everything has defined us to go in certain ways. Yes. But there's multiple levels of addressing this moment right here, this moment. But also it, re it requires you to take action, which a lot of people won't do. Like my mom is the same way. And I'm very different because I, I do what I do, which is the later, which is you. But my mom is very much the previous. So I'm like, how can I be related to my mom? Because she, she's like, well, this right, what exactly. it is. Uh, and I'm like, you can change it. <laughs> you can change it. 
it is what it is. I feel like it's the most damaging and heinous statement known to the English language because people always interpret it is what it is as there's nothing I can do about it. You know what I mean? And that's, that's the multiple levels of addressing this instant moment, right? The now, the right now that I think there are. I feel like the underlying truth is everything that up to now in all of our lives dictates who we are now and the choices that we're going to make. But I still think that it dictates the choices, not the choice. I feel like there are paths of action and there are paths of doing things. And I think that where, where the decision comes from is the important part, not the decision that's being made. So if a decision is coming from a point of, you know, there's a question of why am I thinking this certain thing? And it could come from you have the gumption, you have the drive, you have the, the want and the ability to do this thing. So you're going to do it. Or it could come from your, your super, you just don't want to deal with it. You uh, value comfort over progress or whatever. So you just want to stay stewing in your own thing. You don't want to change anything because you're comfortable. It, it, it gets really weird because you get into this paradox of, yes, you have options, but when you look at existence, do you actually have options? But there's a sub thing to that of where you where a person chooses to plug in the impetus for those options. I think where we plug in the impetus is where me and my friend are missing each other. You know what I mean? And and me being 40, 44 years old in a few weeks, I'm at the point where I, I always felt like it's because uh, fish are just floating along and tourists, you know, they're just grazing. We're, we're all chilling. We're chilling. So, Kobe, I know we were talking for like an hour and then I had to pop off to another podcast and yeah. uh, I'm in a different room. So that's why it probably sounds a little different now because I moved into oh, yeah. a different room to record it. But I was going to ask you, like, what was your dream as a kid? I, I know you, you said you grew up with parents who were really, really artistic. Did you um, always want to be in design? I know you went into car design for a while. Yeah, I did. My mom said that my first word was car and my second word was go. So um, that's always been. I, I can tell you this. I got struck with the car design bug when 1985, I believe it was the March or April issue of Automobile Magazine, and it had a mm. shot of a yellow Ferrari Testarossa in dramatic perspective. And I was like, inside was an article on that and Lamborghini, Countach. And I was like, yep, that's it. That's what I want to do. I want to own these and I want to design them. And between that and everything that I love about Sid Mead when I was a kid, you know, I watched Blade Runner when I was little, like seven or whatever. All of that stuff, I just fell in love with design between that and Japanese animation that my big brother was showing me. So that was like 1985. 85 is when I was hooked on that kind of thing, you know, like design, cars, future, 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 and really just designing the future. But the art thing, I, it's it's like a perception thing for visual art. I've I've always seen fine art as and visual art, well, art period. I've always seen art as everything. You know, the way you breathe, the way you walk, everything. So I've always known that that's what I was about was creating and making art in one way, shape, or form. Whether it was applied art or visual, I'm um, or fine art. That was my dream for what I wanted to do. And then somewhere around 1987, one of my biggest dreams was to live in New York in a warehouse apartment in Soho or somewhere in the city. 
I mean, somewhere in anywhere in the city or the boroughs, because I was hooked on uh, desperately seeking Susan. And I wanted the warehouse that uh, Homeboy had in that one. And I was just hooked on that. Because I remember I fell in love with Madonna in Who's That Girl? Because she was gangster as hell. The way she acted in that movie was the way that I could see myself being at whatever, seven, eight, nine, ten years old, whatever I was. I was like, she's my soulmate. And so then when I saw Desperately Seeking Susan in the warehouse apartment, I was like, that's, that's my life. That's what I want. And it's real interesting years later on a random day or night looking up and being like, oh, shit, I, I kind of got what I always wanted. You know, I, looked, uh, I was in my warehouse in, over in Bushwick. I was like, this is exactly the place that I wanted ever since I was seven years old. This is bugged out. It's just interesting reaching these milestones where you don't even realize it, but you take the time to look around. And you're like, oh, shit, I achieved everything I wanted at this certain time in my life. And then another time it'll be like i achieve everything i wanted at that other certain time of life so it's interesting well it's about manifestation and visualization right your seven-year-old self sees that picture in your head and then your older version like manifests it i i like how a lot of times it is about that visualization manifestation and a lot of times it's about the stuff that comes before even the visualization manifestation, just the stuff that is you in the uh, unconscious, conscious, semi-conscious realms of the hard drive up in here in your soul that just naturally kind of lead you down that path. You know what I mean? Uh, and that's the fun stuff when you didn't even visually manifest it. You didn't like put it out there in the world, but it just happens because everything in the in the background of your workings and going on is plugged into the same stuff that leads to that eventuality. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's your Pretty unconscious, cool. like moving you through mm. it. Yeah. It's really yeah. interesting. That's the fun part. For, mm. I was going to say, and, and your work often deals with the future and, and you do this mix of like sci-fi dystopia and, yeah. but it's also like a little bit retroactive. And then it also deals with like African-American themes, mm-hmm. but, it, but it's all like detailed storytelling and you set up these futures and they're intense. They're really intense futures. Like I love mm-hmm. the series. What is it? The, um, the machete series. Was that in, oh, in service yeah. of a, was that, in the service of a villain, yeah. Like, that was when I first met you, and that was when I was That's at right. your loft, and that just, like, blew my mind. And then I was That's just right. digging deeper yesterday on your site, and I was like, wait, you used the authentic Bad Brains t-shirt to hold it all together? And I was like, wait, you actually cut up an, an original Bad Brains t-shirt. But I was like, that seems so appropriate. But I was like, yeah. oh, that Bad Brains t-shirt, like, oh. I wish I acquired more before they uh, stopped playing because uh, I, I got to go to a few of their shows. And I'm like, boom, boom, mad shirts. I bought a bunch of shirts and I started integrating those into the, you know, the work, the sculptures and everything. And it, 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 it's interesting. I, I've always been about I've always had a love for authenticity and um, archaeology and relics and everything. But like authenticity, one of the things I love is going to the Met. The Met is like my second home. I love going to the Met. And I always go in, take a left, and go straight to the Greco-Roman hall because it's dope because you can look at these right in front of you. Look, a few inches in front of you is, are these busts and carvings and sculptures of people. 
And but it's from literally two millennia ago. Like these are two thousand plus year old sculptures. But you can see the scratches and the fingerprints and the finger indentations of the person that made this thing. It's almost like time traveling, you know, like in the in the immediate. And I've had a love for using authentic authentic items and authentic pieces and detritus that has real baggage and weight to it, you know, and so much of that tells the story of where these things came from and what the narrative was about. So that's one of the reasons why I like to integrate like actual bulletproof Kevlar into my work. You know, that's all I paint on right now. I just paint on bulletproof Kevlar resin and then also the Bad Brains t-shirts. And that's one of the reasons why when I started the street sign machetes, I would steal them you know, like go out and just take them. But, you know, you can't do anything illegal in New York anymore because cops are everywhere. So I went to the DOT, Department of Transportation, and I, I was like, you guys do, you know, like a personalized signs, like, you know, Kobe Avenue or whatever, right? And they was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was like, well, do you do, can you do real signs, like real streets? You're like, yeah, we make them on the same machine that we make all the street signs from New York. And I was like, word. And so all the street signs that I use for the machetes, they come off the same machines and are made in the same way as all in, in the same factory right over here in Morningside as all the street signs for the entire New York NYC. So it's cool. I, I like that's it. So I like that cool. authenticity. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's awesome. Yeah. The machetes blew me away. And just all the work that you do. I mean, you're you're really a multimedia artist in, in such a true sense because you go from video to sculpture to painting and you just did the cloak series too which was amazing and i was just reading the little write-up in vogue on it yeah that was a lot of fun yeah yeah but but you worked in fabrics before you were making gowns at some point i remember there was right. like a huge gown in your studio when i was visiting mm -hmm. you that was for in the service of a villain yeah because um, i'm such a micromanager that if i'm gonna make some i have to learn how to make it even if I'm going to shop it out to somebody, I got to learn and know how to make it. And then I can shop it out for somebody to fabricate. But I'm a micromanager. So I just went on YouTube and, you know, I, I always say there should be like a degree for like the University of YouTube because you can learn anything off of that. I learned how to sew, what a needle was, uh, thread, fabric, all that's, you know, I, I learned it all off YouTube and just did it, you know, started making these Victorian Elizabethan gowns and stuff. It, it was weird, you know, post 2010, being around other practicing artists that came through like the artist tract. You know, a lot of them found out what being an artist was in undergrad, like somebody told them what being an artist was. And I'd never been around people like that. And so many of them are like, hey, so what do you do? What do you make? I was like, I make art. And, you know, like naive me. And then they're like, no, but what do you make? I was like, Oh, I'm, you know, art, you know, everything. And in my head, I'm like music, sculpture, paintings, you know. Yeah, but what people, I'm like, uh, like, they were like, yeah, I do watercolor. What do you do? I was like, that's, that, that's all you do? And I just didn't, <laughs> right? it didn't <laughs> register. Yeah, I was like, that's it? Why would you? Ooh. Yeah. Spending so it, your it's whole entire life just doing one, one art form. <laughs> right. I can't, I can't even, even now I can't fathom that, you know, it just seems so weird to me. But like that thing you were talking about, about being multidisciplinary, I'm still getting used to that actually being a thing that is, has to be said or recognized, you know, it's interesting. It's weird. Like I work in advertising and people are always blown away. Like whenever I do presentations or whenever I do my other stuff, they're like, you work in every medium. I'm like, don't, doesn't everyone? 
Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. like they're like, well, you just you just did video and you just animate. And I'm like, I'm like, yeah, yeah. Like I'm an artist. This is what an artist does. An artist creates, and they can usually work in multiple mediums. And like, yeah. and that's what a creative is. Like yeah. a creative makes creative things. Mm-hmm. And just, mm-hmm. you know, some people choose to just play with one thing and, you know, like, mm-hmm. why not play with a lot of things? Like, but, you know, but I think that also comes from, like, probably you and my personalities where, like, you lived all over the world, you speak multiple languages, and that comes with that. You know, you're comfortable playing around with different, in, in different sandboxes. Yeah, 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 definitely. Uh, the, one of the best things that ever, I remember when it first happened, when my parents took me on vacation back in 92, took all of us on vacation to Europe. And that was the first time I had been outside of American culture before. And I knew right then, even at, even at 15, when we went out there, I knew that this was the best thing that's ever happened to me because it expanded my perception so hard, like so hard that I was open to so many more things. I was energized to to seek out and be open to so many more things. The possibilities that I envisioned for myself just broadened exponentially in three days. You know, by the third day we were out there, I was like, the world is my oyster. You know, I can do anything. All of us can do anything. There's so many opportunities for all of us out here. You know, it was wild, you know? Yeah. yeah. And then speaking of opportunities, you know, like how do you how do you choose your next story? Like, I'm sure mm. inspiration comes at, like from everywhere at you, you know, you're, you're probably a sponge just like picking everything up, but yes. like, how, yes. how do you, <laughs> how do you choose what to focus on? And like every one of your works is just so detailed. How do you, how do you figure out what your next thing is? Like I'm, you're probably doing it right now if you are, I, you know, I like, am. Yeah. The emotion hits me. And then I'm like, well, it happens in a lot of different ways, but it happens in a few different ways. But the general through line for all of it is the inspiration comes bit by bit from different things, bigger, smaller, you know, volumes hit me. Sometimes it'll come off of one huge thing. I'm like, I need to do something in that, in the vein of that theme. I need to do something in the vein of that, whatever. But so much of it, the th- I, yeah, I think the through line to any way that any physical way that this stuff comes at me is that I really want to the viewer to have an experience. And a lot of what I do is trying to recreate a lot of the experiences that I've had throughout my life. Because I've been lucky enough to have crazy fucking experiences, like massive amounts. I was talking with my might as well be brother last week, and we were talking about it was just mentioning like the life that I've led. So I find myself disappointed that there are certain things that haven't happened yet that I thought was, were going to happen by now, like the mansion, the Lamborghini Cabo, you know, all these things. And then I stop and I'm like, it, but, but actually he was telling me, he was like, you know, you've had so many experiences that none of us will ever have. And he, he was like, so many consistently, <laughs> like you're living the life, like your life should be on HBO Max or something. Like it's a movie, it's a film life. You know, it's like you couldn't write this shit. Uh, and I was thinking, I was like, yeah, so many of the things that I used to want, literally to attain those, I would have to give up all of this other stuff, all this other stuff that enriches 
the experience of being alive in this dimension, in this time, in this, you know, being all the other things, you know, it, it forces me to look at those other things that I wanted and go behind that. Like, why did I want those? And does it have to be specifically those things? You know, let me just let me go to the why and the foundation of that and then look at other things that I can attain much easier without having to give up, you know, my entire life. And so all those experiences that I've had are a lot of those are experiences that I want to give over and create for other people. And that's one of the reasons why I got into fine art was I want to give to not just younger people, but definitely younger people. But I want to give to other people the kind of mind opening, enlightening or just aesthetic experiences that I had growing up as a kid, young adult. And even up to now, you know, like um, there was there were times when I was hunted, you know, like people were trying to kill me, like literally trying to kill me in multiple countries. And I really want to find ways to impart that experience to folks, you know, like the experience of having a unhinged, you know, racist psychopath with their finger on the trigger of an AK-47 shoved in my face and about to blow my head off, you know, in a Cairo airport, you know, I, I want to give that feeling and that and, and express to someone so they can feel it, that emotion of what happens when your life flashes before your eyes, what happens when everybody around is freaking out, what happens when you realize, oh, this is it. And like all the other things that I experienced too, you know, the, the good, the bad, the dramatic, that's really what I want to do. And so every project that I have or every project that I work on or begin to think about has that as a core foundational through line, imparting, giving the experience to these experiences to someone else, you know, how I can create that for them, how they can have that. And that's why a lot of what I'm looking at in the last few years has been how can I make fully immersive installations, you know, because sight, smell, sound, you know, all of that wrapped in. I'm like, yeah, I want to do that. And also, I hope nobody steals this. I mean, it's not like I'm going to do it. But Real, real hardcore indica. I know a lot of people's empathy just shoots up, skyrockets on that. So I'm thinking about like, okay, okay, is there a legal way that I could, through the air ducts, just gas indica into an art space, and then all their empathy will just go way off the rocks, and they're just gonna like fall into these videos, fall into these paintings, and have these out of body experiences. You know what I mean? These- oh my god. Do you do you remember like a few years ago they caught this guy in LA who's trying to put as much acid into the water supply as possible? Oh, I did hear a little <laughs> bit about that. I couldn't remember if that was a dream that I dreamt or it was no. actually a thing. Right? Okay. Yeah. It was a thing, and of course it's LA because that's like the perfect place because that's LA. LA is just that <laughs> level of nuts. It would happen in LA. Yeah. But I was like, imagine like all of LA just tripping. I mean, it's different when you don't know you're tripping and you're tripping. That's that's messed up. But if you know you're going to be tripping, like, but but then again, like, how will people's consciousness change? Like, maybe they might become kinder. I know exactly (laughs) how that. Yeah. Like so much would happen because that actually happened to me and a friend of mine. We were coming out of the art expo at the convention center downtown L.A. Right. And uh, right next to the Staples Center. Right. And we're coming out. And he he turns to me, he's like, yo, something's up, yo. And I was like, yo, what do you mean? Because, yeah, I'm not quite feeling right. He was like, yo, I'm feeling off as hell. I was like, are we tripping? 
He's like, I think I'm fucking tripping. I was like, yo, I'm tripping. Something happened because we don't know what happened. It was either like when we were inside, somebody gassed something or maybe we touched something. We didn't know. But both of us were tripping like it was uh, mushrooms, like like it was mushrooms, acid. Yeah. And it, it went on for I mean, we were, we were like that for like it was like an hour, a couple of hours or something like that. It, it could have wild. been liquid mushrooms or something, like liquid something. Yeah. Who we knows? we didn't drink anything together. It, it was really weird. Or or something that goes through the skin. Yeah, there's something but that goes through the skin. It was happening hardcore. So, like, I took that experience wow. and I was really thinking, like, what it would feel like if somebody just got super fucking high and started tripping. and But, but you know, unintentionally and had no idea where it came from. And right. exactly what you're talking about, like the mind altering things that yeah. the, the, the attitude and altering things that that would have an effect on. I remember in high school, somebody dozed my science teacher and he had to go home oh, and he was shit. like, Ricky, and he was up. on the, yeah, it's so fucked up. And he wasn't a guy that tripped. And I just remember yeah. hearing that story and there were rumors of who did it. And I was like, mm. I don't know. I never found out, but like, but that was messed up. And I was like, my, because my science teacher was just such a straight laced guy. And I was like, mm, mm. yeah, but back to you being a multimedia I, artist. I, re- <laughs> I remember, I remember being glad that I didn't go to white schools when I was in uh, junior high and high, when I was yeah. in high school, because so many of my white friends that went to like these white schools in the suburbs of DC, like th- this one girl came home to my girlfriend's house and she, he, she was talking about, yeah, somebody put speed in my drink at lunch today. And I was like, yeah. what? And she was still yeah. like buzzing, like going crazy, right? And yeah. I was like, thank God, all we got over here in these black schools is weed <laughs> and barely that. So, yeah. Yeah, was, I, I grew up in Connecticut and uh, there were a lot of mm-hmm. drugs in my high school from heroin mm-hmm. to acid to, mm-hmm. I wasn't really, I wasn't, I was not, I was pretty straight laced. I was pretty scared. Like in high school, I was like, well, yeah. I'm going to ruin my brain. I don't want to break my brain. <laughs> now, I'm like, um, now I'm like, where's the weed? Uh, <laughs> yeah. like, I didn't. I didn't start smoking until in my like mid twenties from advertising because I was just so mm. stressed out, like all the anxiety from working on it. But yeah, but yeah it's true. It, it's true. The drugs in the schools and the kids, like mm-hmm. it's fucked up. But uh, but I'm 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 digressing again. But I, but I was gonna ask you, like, what is what is your creative process? Like, do you have a creative process? Do you have to like light some candles? Like what's, how do you like to work? Oh yeah, I do. I do. The biggest thing, I don't want any semblances of failure around me because being a Pisces, I'm a super sponge. And so um, when I see instances of failure in my visual zone, my audio zone, any of that, it fucks me up and makes me not want to create. That's really big for me. I need to see images of success and then I can see success in what I'm making or what I'm trying to get at or my career or my housing situation, whatever. You know, I'm really reactive like that. So I'm always, my creative process never turns off. I'm always in some stage of it, you know, whether I'm at the grocery store or asleep, getting in bed, in the shower. So I try to surround myself in my home with uh, images of anti-failure, images of success. And I, when I go out, I navigate my, where I walk and where I go, my, my travels, you know, my paths. I navigate that by the most successful appearing route, you know, like walking down from like here. Recently, I'm trying not to walk down Nostrand because it's just fucking depressing. You know, it's like a bunch of 
you run into way too many losers and people that have just destroyed their lives. You know, I walk down the other side street over here with all these uh, brownstones, the scenic group with the trees and stuff. So it's much more inspiring. When I was in school doing my uh, master's, get my MFA up at Columbia, I could never go to 125th Street because 125th Street was the second most depressing street in Manhattan. The first would definitely be 34th Street. But um, <laughs> easily, yeah. man, Penn Station, Oof. it is like the bowels of Hades. Oh, God. <laughs> it's like the worst of the worst of everywhere. Jersey, Long Island, fucking uptown. Like, like the worst of the worst goes to 34th Street. It's just tripe. It's like Android design. Oh, yeah, yeah, real yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> and then the thing about 125th Street is that I did this, right? And a lot of people didn't believe me. I was like, I, I, told, my, I told friends of mine, I was like, walk down 125th Street without your headphones on, you know, between the McDonald's right before the Apollo, walk all the way down to Linux and just listen to the conversations that you hear, people on their phone, all this stuff. And I told them, I guarantee you, that 90% of 85% of the conversation is going to be somebody pissed off yelling in a phone about how somebody did them wrong and how much they pissed off every time, every time. That's what it is. And when I first came to New York, ever since I first came to New York, I've lived in Brooklyn for the most part. And uh, you walk down Fulton Mall from what the courthouse all the way down the main Fulton stretch down to like juniors or whatever. Right. And it's a completely different experience. Like you'll have the odd pissed off person, but mostly it's on some they always say Brooklyn love. It's on some Brooklyn love type stuff. Like the little ragamuffin rugrats that are running around terrorizing everybody are like terrorizing with happiness and pride. <laughs> you know, it's like not malicious. And then you go to 125th and it's completely malicious. And I did a lot of deep thinking and I think I understand one of the big factors that factors into that makes this happen between these two places is that crack hit hit harlem like a fucking nuclear bomb heroin and crack hit harlem so hard you know what i mean in the late 70s and 80s that it's never recovered really from that you know it's it's brutal up there it's brutalist everything is brutalist up there the the living is brutal the the this the that the other is brutal people talk about this romance of harlem and you know there is a current romance of harlem you know in many different ways but the romance that so many people talk about is back in the days of the cotton club back in the days of a harlem nights you know like the roaring 20s and stuff and that got killed in the subsequent decades whereas brooklyn you know is more familial like family, like long-term family stuff. It's row houses and lots of brownstones and the West Indian influence. There's so much Caribbean, African, and West Indian influence into Black Brooklyn that you get that immigrant mentality that goes through and changes and morphs through the generations. It's this will-do, can-do, family-family, extended family, work-to-a-bright-future kind of thing. Whereas Black America Black Americans descended from, you know, the Africans that were brought over here on ships. We've developed this kind of a thinking where it's like we've been beat down so hard and beat down so much that this country owes us. Whereas immigrants come over, they don't think that this country owes a damn thing. They're like, we're going to do this thing. And so when we when you are deservedly owed something by an empire or an overarching system, and there's no way that they're going to give it to you, and they just consequently keep beating you down every day, every year, every minute then it's traumatic and you a society like that a group in society like that doesn't necessarily have the same mindset as a group that's coming from coming with optimism you know it's like pessimism optimism thing 
And so up in Harlem, you can see very much the, in, in many instances, you can see very much the eventuality of that kind of nonstop, horrific, demonic abuse and what that turns into. And in my work, that manifests recently in my most recent pieces as this demon called Jim Crow, Jimmy Crow, or James Crow. He has a few names, but they, I'm going to use the, uh, the plural pronoun, they are the physical manifestation of this centuries-long torture and antagonism that the Black American diaspora collectively feels. And it, was, it started with the idea of quantum physics idea of thought, emotion, reality, matter. You know, what if emotion and a thought by so many people reaches a critical point, a mass, where it has no choice but to physically manifest itself? And if it physically manifested itself, what would that look like? And in mine, it's this massive antlered, horned, faceless beast called uh, James Crow. And when the beast was created, it named itself after the ultimate pain that it and the people that it came from felt. And that was the Jim Crow era, which, you know, after all that slavery and after literally being a victim of an institution of slavery and finally gaining freedom and finally gaining money, riches, becoming governors, you know, like mayors, all this stuff, banks, all this stuff to have all of that dangled in front of you and then ripped away with a policy of murder, detritus, and post-slavery slavery, it's almost worse than the initial slavery. My opinion, you know, uh, in a certain way of looking at it, that's one of the worst things that ever happened to Black American folks up until now was the Jim Crow era. And so that's why this uh, beast adopted that name, because it's, 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 a, it's a golem, really. Like, the beast is a golem, and it adopted the name of the worst pain that it's ever taken. It'd be like if a Jewish golem named themselves, you know, the Holocaust or something. You know, it's like, it's a reverse way that, that like rap lyrics for so long have been trying to reappropriate the N-word and like switch it to like some form of power or something, take away its power and then give it, it, give it their own power. It's like this golem is taking the experiential instead of the N-word, is taking the experiential worst thing ever and naming itself after that. And in the narrative, it dishes out retribution and reciprocity to anyone that goes against or is trying to destroy what's left of the Black American diaspora. Yeah, I, I remember looking at it on the site and it was like this um, this being with like golden-tipped horns. Yeah. Yeah. So they're like a little like it's a very it's it's almost like a delicate delicate figure like it's really menacing but it's but it's delicate and it's adorned. Yeah. Exactly. And I, I was going to ask you why you chose gold and why you chose it to have accents because you also have a different painting that has like um 125th Street on it and a guy with a AK47 on it and it's like it there's something oh, to Oh yeah. Right, right. Right? And yeah. then there's mm-hmm. something to, you know adorning adorning that pain. And, mm-hmm. and taking that pain and it's like you know I, I mean you lived in japan you know this it's like when you repair something that's broken with gold right i forget the term for it but but i was gonna ask you about that i was like i was like i wonder what your your idea was behind like using the gold to put like little accents on it and decorate it somebody did that with a basketball court recently 
they gold inlaid all the cracks in the basketball court off of the um, Japanese tradition of doing that. It was pretty cool. But yeah, specifically that piece the, with the horns that you saw, this, this cat Jim Crow comes in like these different iterations. And that one took the, oh my God, I can't believe I forgot the name. It took the horn that is actually Jewish tradition. The shofar. The shofar, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what those are. That's what those are. They're actually uh, shofar. They're in there because it's alluding to the collective pain and the connectivity between all of us as humans and diasporic individuals, diasporic groups, and how we cross over so much. It's kind of touching on suffering, suffer, suffer competition. I, I forget the name. Where it's like my suffering is worse than your suffering. That whole kind of that whole kind of dynamic. How that kind of thinking gets away from certain parts of reality, where the connectivity of all of us and the connectivity of all of our pain, and the cross pollination of ideas and concepts, and uh, how we're not all of us as these constructs that we make are not as different as those constructs would dictate. Yeah. The complexity of all these things, you know, and breaking down, not not breaking down, but exploring these subjective realities and false definites, you know, there's nothing really definite, you know, everything's potential to be something else. So that, that's, that's what, that's what a lot of that was and complicating assumed narratives of pain and complicating assumed narratives of class, gender, race, and group. The, Jim Crow is multisexual, pansexual, pangendered, you know? So, you, and you can tell in the uh, pictures, paintings, collages, and sculptures that there are lots of masculine elements about Jim, and there's lots of feminine elements about Jim. You know, that's just one aesthetic, that's just one line of aesthetic flourishes that I use to get away from these definitive binary assumptions that viewers might have about sex, gender, race, religion, faith, all these things. Mm -hmm. I wonder how, you know, it's, it's the topic of monsters. It's that topic that you said your mom brought up, right? Mm -hmm. Like, are, are monsters real? And it's like, yes, they're real. And it's like, this whole collective event is just one giant monster. Mm. It, that's what it just makes me think of. I was like, it, it's interesting that your your work deals with just monsters mm -hmm. and protection from them. And th I'm jumping over into the next series, which is your your cape series. I, actually, mm. I don't know if it's a series. I don't know if you just did like a few offs, just like a few off designs for the Wide Awakes, or if you just did like a if you're planning a whole series for them. Yeah, a year ago when we started the Wide Awakes, mm -hmm. one of the real visual physical cornerstones to the resurgence was the capes that the originals wore. And I've been doing fashion since I was in Japan. I think I started, yeah, I started doing street fashion, streetwear and techwear when I was in Japan. And I've carried on into, you know, the costumes that we were talking about earlier that I was doing for in the service of villain, my own costumes. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I was so frustrated that I wasn't seeing the clothes that I wanted. And especially with this Normcore thing, you know, like when Normcore came in and like, what was that, 2007, 8, 9 or whatever it was, like it just killed everything that I found interesting about fashion. You know, it was like and, and we could do a whole thing on how 
retro that came in you know retro came in in the like late 80s early 90s and how that just led us on a path to nothingness that we have now and gen genres of music genres of clothing genres of whatever have just disappeared and now we just have like, everything has uh, disappeared and now and now everything is just the giant that it's a so giant yeah yeah you know like, I remember i we're the same age like i'm i'm gonna be 42 in like a few months like mm -hmm. i just remember discovering things and like yeah. getting that fix from like oh that's the fashion nobody's wearing that that group yeah. is wearing that like uh -huh. but it, it's it's like it's like digging in the crates it's like it's harder to dig in the crates there's some gems but they're so buried under all this deluge of crap yeah and it's 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 crazy too because even when we step because there's a lot of stuff that i just don't like about the modern world like fashion music stuff like that but even when i take you know i, I step back so i know that's just me i step back and i look at it i try to look at it objectively like what are we looking at and what's the real difference? What's really pissing me off? Because I hated, I hated stuff back then, and I hate stuff now. But why is what's why is it different now? And I realized that, uh, and I'm not going to go too deep into this. I'm, I'm going to give it give it in a nutshell. But the core of it is that the speed of information, finance, and getting things done, and industry, how fast an industry can move, has outpaced the ability for humans of this era to create and ferment uh, actual culture. So what used to take seven, eight, 10 years before it got gentrified or watered down or consumed into the mass culture and, and just diluted, it used to take seven to 10 years for that to happen for a lot of things. Now it takes seven to 10 months, if that, you know? And so what we're seeing so much, and one of the differences that we're feeling, even if people can't put it into words, is that the machine that homogenizes and standardizes all forms of culture, whether it's art, music, food, neighborhoods, whatever, moves so fast now. The actual subcultures don't have enough time to germinate and spread out in the natural fashion anymore. One of the things that I point at is a, a few years ago was the whole ghetto gothic movement. You know, Venus X, right, is who kicked that off and really propagated that. And so that. Everybody thought that this ghetto gothic thing was going to be like the next grunge, the next drum and bass, the next, uh, you know, like jungle, the next IDM, you know, it was going to be like the next thing, you know what I mean? And last forever. But I forgot how far it was into it. It must have been like a year, two years into it or something. Maybe it was early on. So maybe it was three years into it. It was, it was gentrified, you know, and I remember it was something about when it was either Rihanna or Beyonce just started dropping ghetto gothic. Ghetto gothic is this thing. That's when, if I remember correctly, Venus X was like, okay, we're dead in it. We're dead in it. It's done. It's done. We, I'm, <laughs> I'm, 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 I'm burning it yeah, down yeah. right now. But lots of things like that <laughs> happen. And if you look at it, that's a lot of what's happening right now. Uh, something will happen, and within six months, it will, be, it will run its whole course of underground to overground to watered down to wiped out. And you're seeing this across the country arguably the world, but you're definitely seeing it across the country right now where so many subcultures uh, are popping up here and there, little, little, and then they just get, get destroyed, get burnt out before, because the other machine that used to work in tandem to a certain degree with it is just moving so fast, efficiently, and, you know, things are faster now. And human, human, they're faster than the natural human pace. So saying all that to say, 
Why was I saying that? You were talking about fashion. We started talking about your capes, and then we got yes. talking about. Uh, but 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 back to um, but back to your fashion. I was gonna say, yeah, I'm looking at it from like a feminist lens too, yeah. because in the '90s when you and I grew up, like we had female oversexuality, I guess, in music videos. Mm. And I'm just I keep on going back to music videos, mm-hmm. and I'm like, have we really progressed? Like we're at WAP. Is that progression or regression, or is that just hypersexualization? I, like, is that? I say that. I would I would say that it is progression, but progression doesn't move in a linear fashion. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. On specifically the watt tip, mm-hmm. one of the progressions is that they're getting the lion's share of the money off of their objectification of themselves, and they are more directly connected with the audience that is consuming this stuff. And I'm not saying that progression is good. You know. Like that's, I'm just that's saying an interesting view. something that it's progression is something that happens, you know, between then and now right. the difference because of the things that have happened in that time, bring it to here. Right. And so honestly, I think that a lot of times people mistake progression and evolution as the closer we get to the personal goals that those people that are thinking about that want to happen. But nature doesn't work like that. So far as we know, nature doesn't work like that. Nature is more like shit's going to happen and it's going to affect everything and things are going to bounce off each other and new things will arise. You know, that's how evolution works. You know, Mm -hmm. you take all this, all these elements, shake it up in a bottle and whoever survives Mm it is the next evolution, Mm -hmm. you know, like, and it makes so much sense. You know, like people wonder, like so many religious people, they point to that as proof that evolution isn't a thing. They're like, well, we're not related to monkeys. So how can we be related, related to monkeys? Blah, 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 blah. And it's this thing where it's like they, they, have, they need to put a conscious de- deity, like an intelligent being, an intelligent something into the mix because they can't see things happening on their own. You know, they're like, somebody made a mm-hmm. choice for this creature to branch off from this creature and got rid of that creature. You know what I mean? Like they say somebody made a choice, mm-hmm. but it, it's this human reflex that we have to humanify. And I forgot the, the, the phi word, that's actually what people use, but to humanify all forms of nature. And I think that us with progression of society is the same thing. It, it's a natural progression. You know, everything that we are, speak, use, do is a form, is in mm-hmm. nature and works by natural causes. It's just when all this stuff we see as being human made and making that separation between human made and nat- natural made is we're looking at a sub chapter that's in the big book of nature is human made right here because mm-hmm. all of this in here in the, the the section you know the subchapter of human made it's all natural and so mm-hmm. looking at it in those terms it makes sense everything that happens even the stuff we don't like like fashion the fact that normcore came back in you know i could have predicted that because normcore came in right when i was worried that we were going to run out of retro stuff to make because everything everything in fashion and everything in music and everything in whatever has had been retro since Q-Tip and Delight came out with Groove is in the Heart. That was like the big punch in the face of, okay, this thing called retro that Huey Lewis and the News did a couple of songs that were like 1950s doo-wop a few years ago in the 80s. All right, this is the new thing now. We're going to, from, from here on out, we're going to go 15 to 20 years back, and that's going to be our present music and everything and fashion and everything. And it did that. But one, this is the start that it did that. But once it caught up, where we were looking at caught up to that, there was nothing to go retro on anymore. And that happened in 2003, 4, 6, 7. 
And so I was thinking, I was worried that once we hit 2006, seven, I mean, our retro is going to be inbreeding itself. We're going to be doing retro on top of the retro that we did at that time that retro started and that we're going to double retro up. And that's what they did. They, um, they went full on normcore. Everybody walked around looking like Seinfeld ever since 2008 and it's carried on up until now, you know? Maybe we can equate the rise of normcore mm. to the rise of tech. The rise of tech? Yeah, because tech started really kind of like becoming mainstream. Like people were building the internet in like 1998, you know, but like tech didn't really start going until after September 11th, like mm -hmm. September 11th, that was a no tech world. I think tech, you know, like somewhere like we had AOL chat rooms, MySpace, whatever, yeah. but like 2004 is when things started really just like coming online as I call it. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if this homogeny of our clothing had to correspond with like our consciousness being homogenized. I'll start with what I know that relates to this. I do know that that thing that I was talking about, the speed of information and everything being at our fingertips, plays a massive role in the normalization and homogenization of culture and all the things in culture. That's directly related to tech and the push for immediate connected information, immediately connected facilitation of financial movements, market movements, industry, fashion companies, music companies, music distribution, all that stuff. So in, in that sense, I definitely am, am, am totally on your, on your side talking about um, how tech plays a huge role in all of this, in gentrification of cities, like, like in, in everything, because all of this is based on the efficiency and the modes of information and finance moving, you know, because it's dominoes and do dominoes down and all the dominoes are involved in tech too. The big wigs, how they move that stuff. And then the, the, the subcats, you know, how, the, and even the underground folks, you know, how they use tech to disseminate their information and this and that. But, and this branches off to a lot of things, but one of those branches fast forward to now is that, I don't know if you noticed, not a lot of people have noticed this, but when you search for something on Google, right most or any search engine but when you search for something on google it is so much harder to find what you're looking for now than it was 15 to 20 years ago when you searched on google and that's because it's not just the algorithms it's the fact that there's so much out there that you get the phone book with this amount of information not just at people's fingertips but being bombarded people being bombarded with it all the time it's no surprise that everything's become Hom homogenous, that genres in music have compl almost completely disappeared. That in popular culture, there's almost no subsects of electronic music. There's just EDM. I remember five or seven, 10 years ago. I remember a long time ago, within the last decade, was the first time I took this abbreviation seriously. I was like, what, what's EDM? And they were talking about electronic dance music. I was like, that's it? That's work? And so that, that just became like the catch-all phrase for, for all of it, you know what I mean? And then the only, t all, pretty much the only times you find subgenres are these disparate, way out there joints that almost get no play, like uh, Vaporwave a few years ago, or like, you know, whatever. But it's these like real niche, like out of the way sects that aren't, and even those, you know, even those, so much of that gets bubbled into this mass of homogenized creations. and flashing back to the 90s and the early 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 2000s you know and and times before that when you're talking about electronic dance music you had a swath 
of genres that all were going in these different directions, but all of them were, I'm not going to say mainstream, but were very on board, you know, on the level. And then fashion, you know, everything, even, even um, G-Star, you know, even, which used to be my favorite Euro trash uh, brand, <laughs> even G-Star is just, it's all normcore now. It's, it's all Seinfeldian, you know? And so that's, that's how I got into really making my own clothes. You know, because I wasn't seeing what I wanted and everything that I saw that I did want was like a thousand dollars, two thousand dollars for a garment up at Barney's. And I was like, this is ridiculous. This is unnecessary. And so I'm really focusing on a lot of uh, regal tech wear right now. I brought back in Kennedy Heavy Industries. I brought back my first career of product design and I'm going to be going uh, very strong with that right now. And, you know, a lot of it was fueled by working with Hank and the Wide Awakes, you know, and starting up Wide Awakes with, you know, these capes and how we express our themes and our mentality through these physical objects that we're producing. And, and, and you know, upending these things, taking what people expect and upending them. I remember when we were starting out, they were like, nobody wears capes. And we're like, that's why we're making them. And they're like, yeah, but capes aren't cool. And then I was like, that's why we're making them cool. Come on now. You know? Right, right. And, you know, it's also like, and and now with the advent of like Instagram and YouTube culture, fashion culture is totally being like moved on its side. It's it's like, it's Mm -hmm. like you have so much stuff. But that's like, that's like a whole entire other podcast it's these are so you know i kind of want to hold these salons because i feel like Mm. where do people get their stimulations from like i get stimulations from listening to podcasts i kind of get some stimulations from listening to clubhouse but not really like there are a few people that are ellen musk just joined clubhouse so i'm like ooh, that's interesting you know what really stimulates me talking about Hmm. audioly orally is Mm -hmm. and podcast wise do you mess with chances with wolves no, but it sounds like something I should definitely be following. Oh, your chances with wolves is off the chain. It's 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 just like I, I think it's like two or three cats DJs that um throw on the most obscure shit you've ever heard in your life. And I've been hardcore onto them ever since 2010, no 2008 when I first got back and East Village Radio was still going on and they had a whole. Oh, show I love East, East Village Radio. It was so yeah. good. Oh my god. And chances with wolves, I mean, you know, you'll go, they'll go from like Zelda to, you know, Turkish folk rock to like, you know, Thai yes. traditional tech. And it's just, but if I'm, if I was to say, and I know this wasn't a question on the list, but if I was to say where so much of my inspiration comes from, like, that's a mm-hmm. big one. So I just throw that on and it takes me out of whatever mode of society I'm in and just throws me into like, you know, the galaxy. But but things music, like that, uh, that take me take you mm, out of the quotidian. Take you out. Yeah. I've been listening to Rich Medina spinning on Twitch because oh, I miss yeah. APT and it makes me feel like I'm young again. Right. <laughs> that's right. He was always up at APT when we were there. Yeah, that's right. I lived I lived at APT. That was like Tuesday night, Rich yeah. Medina and like Peanut Butter Wolf. That was my jam. Yeah, that was like second home. That's right. Yeah, oh but, my God. But, the memories of that place. <laughs> you know, we got Rich Medina. <laughs> he came out and spun when we were at Burning Man my first year. And me and Hank oh, were right. building, yeah, we were, we, we built this Afro pick that was just shoved in the yes. ground. It's like 30 foot tall Afro pick that you could climb up in and everything. And then we had Love Rich it. Medina and Diplo came through and spun on the robot heart sound system. The party was off the chain. It's great. It's great. That's amazing. You know what? I should, did you, um, are you connected with the disorient camp? My friends are in the disorient camp. They're yeah. super creative. 
Yeah. Do you know my friend Teddy Lowe? He did that fire breathing steel dragon. Did you ever see that like LED I, dragon that was like the size yes. of a truck? Yes. So that's that's my friend Teddy in um in China. I should connect you with him. I've been friends with him forever. He's an oh, LED right. artist. I should that's have cool. him on my podcast. Yeah, but I've never, wait, I haven't been to Burning Man. It's like every year the, I end up working. You're talking about the LED white dragon that was all articulated and stuff? And blue fire out of it. A, yeah, shouldn't send me a pic because that was yeah. one of my favorites of the last couple of years. And then what you call yeah. we stayed at Disorient the uh last year. You did? Yeah. I, you probably ran into him, my friend Teddy Lowe. Mm-hmm. You can Google Teddy Lowe and you'll see his stuff. It's like he's just he he works with light and he just lit up like like the Hong Kong skyline a few years ago. Mm, like he's just dope. he's on the next level. He's really dope. He's really, cool. really smart. That's cool. But yeah, yeah. I love the Afro pick uh, because, you know, like, uh, I'm just going to say it, but like Burning Man is so white and that's why I haven't gone. It's like every year I get a chance to go. And then Dino, <laughs> when I was with my ex-husband, oh, I love my ex-husband. He tried to get me to go one year and he got a bunch of people to go and everybody went. And then all I remember is like everybody came back and the girls are miserable because they all had their periods and there was oh. no water. And like oh. all their periods like synced. Wow. And everybody was like in an RV. And I was like, wow. I'm, I'm, I was like, yeah, it doesn't sound like, like, and honestly, all I did was work in advertising for the last 12 years, like mm. 12 hour days. Like I just, I'm kind of like coming out of sweatshops. Like I'm still in those sweatshops. Mm. Like, yeah. but all I did was work. And when people are partying, I was like, I'm working, making ads. Oh, like I, that's too bad because both Burning crazy. Man times that I went 18, 2018, 2019 were the most fun, existential moments of my entire life or my entire recent life it was amazing i'm hoping that you know once the pandemic is over like i think people are going to be gravitating to things like burning man a bit more oh yeah and you know like i'm um, trying to see that but mm-hmm. you know what was your what is your dream as an adult honestly honestly i'm still i'm just figuring that out because i'm with the with this last thing that happened this last summer right the the third switch over the download, as you call it. This is Kobe 4.0. I've spent the last six months figuring out who the fuck this guy is, you know, like having conversations with him, talking to him, observing him, you know, being really observant and figuring out who he is, what he wants and what he's all about. And so I could give you some stuff that's like consistent that my dream is, but like the specifics of what my dream and my drive, my want is. And my desires are honestly 100% still figuring that out. I have no idea. But the core stuff is to be physically comfortable and have the ability to have choice, you know what I mean? And not be railroaded into, in, into things that I, ways of life or ways of living that I don't necessarily want to be in, you know? And whether that's, and it's not just financially, but it's definitely financially, but it's, um, also just the way that your life is structured and what you're doing. You know, a lot of people are trapped in these channels. Mazes. Yeah, yeah. Channels. Yeah. A lot of people is trapped in these channels that they can't break away from for one reason or another, you know, that their life just isn't structured that they can break away from even if they want to. And my thing ever since I was a child was to not be tied down and locked into another person's will. Cause then I'm just a slave. And so, I want to work outside of that as much. I want to be, exist outside of that as much as possible. That's my core. That's my core need. And everything else, you know, is on top of that and branched out from that. 
but it all comes back to that. Yeah, it's just the need to be, you know, in control of your own destiny and in your own life, and and making that making the choices as an artist. Oh no, no, it's just it's surprising when you go outside and you really look around and you realize that people that are in control of their destiny and are in control of their life to a certain extent are a vast, vast minority. I mean, it's like, you know, 5% of the world population. Yeah, it's so true. It's, um, oh, it's so true. And it, it also comes back to having a few money. <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And even, you yeah. know, like to do it the way that we're talking about. Yeah. And even people that I've, I've seen people that have no money that are able to structure their life so that they can be outside of another force's control. You know, it, it's interesting. It's yeah. interesting. It's interesting. We live in a society that's built on this, these uh, fake uh, hierarchies of printed paper. You know what I mean? Like all these made up. I mean, it, it's l literally we're living in mythical storybook shit. Like none of this is real. Money is not real. It's some bullshit, you know, and especially in America, like credit, the credit is like none of this is real. You know, like credit cards aren't real. Worth value isn't real. All this stuff is completely made up. You know, it's mind blowing when you start looking at stuff like that. It's mind blowing because all the dystopian sci fi movies that we grew up with. Is this real? Is this the Matrix are real when you look at them this way? You know, Soylent Green is people like Soylent Green is Monsanto. <laughs> You know, and it is. Uh, yeah. And Matrix is the stock market, the IRS, the entire industry of finance is the Matrix. None of that shit is real. It's made up by people and we buy into it, you know, and all these things. And like the police, the police are literally are literally the slave drivers from a few hundred years ago. You know, like, you know, the, the, the slave catchers and the slave policing is what formed the modern police. Like it went straight from there to there. And so all these truths that when you start pulling back the veil, this is really what my work is centered around because it, 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 I'm not making this stuff up. This is, this is real. And it's shown through the lens. I have to push stuff to the fantastic so that people will understand the vast insanity of our contemporary world, our real contemporary world. Because when you look at it through my eyes and people that pull back the veil, it is this. It is demons walking around. It is, you know, apocalyptic shit. It is soiling green. Especially if you walk down 34th Street or oh, Times God, Square. Yes. Or 125th the... <laughs> Street. Yeah. Oh, yeah. man. Yeah. It's crazy. But, you know, on the bright side, there are some bright spots and we can try to hack the system. And I think this podcast is a bright side because at least we can have conversations. Mm -hmm. um, like this and we can we can talk about it and we can talk about the positive stuff and we can also like i don't know it's kind of like lighting a candle right like we light this thought in another person and yeah, yeah. It, it, we're all we're all trying to escape over the fence right over the fence over the fence and mm. it's like it's like just these gems might inspire somebody else to try to run for over the fence and make it yeah yeah i'm all about inspiration yeah uh-huh shaking it up and see what comes out you know yeah. yeah colby you're amazing thank you so much for taking the time to speak thank you i'm, I'm honored to be here this is this is great <laughs> this is fun yeah. awesome well thank you so much colby again hey, have a good you. evening you too it was thank great you. talking to you i hope to see you sometime soon yeah yes hopefully yes speak soon bye-bye right. see ya
Thanks for tuning into the show. I hope you enjoyed it. Please share on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Dream Nation Love. It's not Dream Nation Podcast, it's Dream Nation Love because I think my single mission in life is to teach people how to love a little bit more and together we can save the world. So it's Dream Nation Love, share it with your friends, have a great day, and go out and make the world a better place.